You know, sometimes there are those people that you come in contact with, and it doesn't take you very long just to figure out what they are passionate about. Just in a conversation, just in a few moments in, you can usually detect that in, in some people. I think as we look at the Apostle Paul, it seems to be one of the things that he is most passionate about is the Lord Jesus Christ. As we read Paul's letters and we see Paul's writings, oftentimes he's speaking about Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And we don't have to read too much further than that. And we see the second thing that Paul is most passionate about, and that is the church of Jesus Christ. And as we look at the book of 1 Thessalonians, and as we continue our journey through the book of 1 Thessalonians, time and time again, we are reminded of his passion, of his passion for Jesus Christ and his passion for the church. Now, I know in your bulletin it says that we're looking at 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 17 through chapter 3, verse 5. And I know some of you were very hopeful in that. But as I tried to bite off that big of piece, I was about seven pages into my notes and realized there was no way we were going to make it into chapter 3. So we have cut it off a little bit. We're going to look at 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 17 through 20 this morning. So when you find 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 17, if you would stand with me, I will read these verses aloud and you can follow along with me in your copy of the scriptures. 1 Thessalonians 2 verses 17 through 20 it reads this way but since we were torn away from you brothers for a short time in person not in heart we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you I Paul again and again but Satan hindered us for what is our hope or joy, or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming. Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Father, we are grateful for this morning that you've given to us and grateful for the opportunity to be able to sit down and look into your word. Father, you know what our day entails. You know what our week looks like. You know what our last week looked like. But Father, I pray that in this time that we are together, that our minds and our hearts might be set upon you. We pray that you would lead us. We pray that you would direct us. And we pray that we would hear from you this morning. Lord, we are so grateful for who you are. We're especially grateful today for your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now, as we dive into this passage, there are two headings that we're going to use to kind of lead us through this passage. Uh, the first thing we want to look at is Paul, as he looks at the present, and he speaks to the church of Thessalonica about the present. But then as Paul looks at the present, he can't help but look at the future. And I think as we look at this and as we see where Paul is looking, I think there's some great reminders in us, for us, as to what we're going through and what we see uh, in life as we move forward. So the first thing we want to look at is this look at the present. Now look at verse 17 with me as Paul looks at the present. He says, but since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time. Now, as we look at this verse, this doesn't seem too bad. But as we read this verse in the Greek, this verse is really a violent verse. Paul's 
heart is here, and as he describes this, this is very violent in nature. This word that means, that's used here for torn away, this carries the idea of being made an orphan. Something being torn away and making someone an orphan. When we think about that, I mean, that's a, that's a tragedy to think about that type of situation where, where someone has parents and then all of a sudden they find themselves orphaned. That's the idea that Paul has here. Paul, as he served, as Paul ministered to the church of Thessalonica, he saw himself as a mother. He saw himself as fulfilling the role of a mother to the church of Thessalonica. He said this in 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 7, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. He identified himself in that and he saw his ministry to them as one nurturing and taking care of this young group of believers. Paul also saw himself as a father figure to them. It says in 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 11 and 12, for we know how like a father for you know how, sorry, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you, encouraged you, charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul came alongside of them and when they needed a little shove to step out and to take that step, when they needed that little bit of encouragement, knowing that it's all going to be okay, Paul was there to do that. Now all of a sudden he looks at them and he feels and worries that they are orphaned. And that's how he describes it. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time. This is Paul's description of his departure. They were, he was torn away. The group, the ministry group, was torn away from the people of Thessalonica. Paul, as he administered in Thessalonica, he was seeing some fruit in his labor as he ministered there. He was seeing some growth in them as he ministered there. But it was still young growth. They were still immature as he looked at them. And they really needed a mother figure and a father figure to come alongside of them still. Acts 17 verse 5 shares with us a little bit about what happened. It says the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob. They set the city in an uproar and they attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. So when Paul was ministering in Thessalonica, things were difficult there. Persecution was taking place and it was not an easy setting for him to be there. Acts 17 verse 10 it says this, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea and when they arrived they went into the Jewish synagogue. So the people that were there in Thessalonica, the believers in Thessalonica knew that it was not safe for Paul. And they knew that for Paul's best interest that he needed to leave. And I'm sure Paul went kicking and screaming, not excited about leaving. But he left them. He left them to stand on their own, even though the persecution was there. And we can imagine that. We can imagine Paul's heart because we know his compassion. We know how he felt towards the people of Thessalonica. Leaving them in the midst of that, his heart ached, and, and he felt like he left them as orphans. There was probably some difficulties within the church and within the area. People were probably accusing Paul of willingly leaving them behind. But Paul didn't willing, willingly leave them. 
he was encouraged to leave for his best interests, and, and he did move on, and he felt as if he left them as orphans. We don't know exactly how long Paul ministered in Thessalonica, but he was in Corinth for 18 months. He was developing disciples, helping the church to stand for 18 months. We know that he wasn't at Thessalonica for that long of a period of time. So that's why he felt like they were, were orphaned. Uh, notice what it says. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, in person, but not in heart. He was gone. He was no longer there. But he had not forgotten them. They may have felt abandoned. They may have felt orphaned. But he, his heart was still there. Geographically, they were separated but emotionally, they were still connected. Spiritually, they were still connected. Paul had not abandoned them, regardless of the accusations that were being made. There's a number of times that we've already seen in our study where Paul's called them to remember, remember, remember. He wanted them to think on those things, how his behavior was, so that they would realize that he had not abandoned them. Notice verse 17 as it continues. We endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again. Paul's desire was to return to Thessalonica. He was eager to return. And notice it says, I want to see you face to face. Now this is probably about six, eight weeks before Facebook, before they could live stream. So he couldn't just put his phone on and then live stream them and check on them. All right, that was not, a, it was not possible. So he didn't do that. But his heart was there with them. And Paul's desire was to help them to grow. Paul wanted to see them mature. Paul's mission, Paul's desire was not to just lead a bunch of people to Christ and check off the boxes. Hey, another person saved, another person saved, another person saved. Ooh, two dots. They were baptized. They were baptized. They were baptized. That's not how Paul did ministry. Paul did ministry with the desire to see people come to know Christ and then he sought to make them disciples so that they would stand on their own, but then they would also learn to reproduce, that that group of believers would go out and share the gospel, and that group of believers would start another church, and another church. And that was how Paul did ministry. This is Colossians 1, verse 8. And Paul says this, Him we proclaim, that's Jesus Christ obviously, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. See, that's his desire. He didn't want to bring a bunch of babies to Christ. He wanted to present people to Christ who were mature. Not just saved, not just baptized, but saved, baptized, and growing maturing. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Remember how we looked a couple weeks ago at Paul, how he labored night and day? This was his labor. This was his desire to see them grow. And oh, he felt awful to think that he might have orphaned them. He wanted to see them grow 
to maturity. That's what he wanted to see. That was his burden for the people of Thessalonica. Now notice what he says. We endeavored the more eagerly with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again. You hear this, how he tried again and again to come because he wanted to see them. He wanted to see them grow. He wanted to come alongside them as a mother, as a father, and help them to mature in their walk. That was his desire. But notice what he says. But Satan hindered us. Satan had hindered Paul from returning to Thessalonica. The word that's used here for hindered means to break up the road and put up a roadblock. That's what, that's what this word means. So anytime that Paul tried to go to Thessalonica, the road had been destroyed and a roadblock had been built. That door had been closed. He was not able to go in that direction. And as he lays this out, he sees this as the work of Satan. Satan is the one who's hindered his work. On Paul's second missionary journey, on Paul's second missionary journey, he was trying to go back. He and Barnabas, had their desire was to go back to all of the churches that he had planted the first time and tried to minister to those churches and encourage those churches. But as Paul set out on that second missionary journey, he discovered that God had a different plan. And he said it was the Holy Spirit that hindered him. It's in Acts 16, verse 6. It says, they went through the region of uh, Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. So the Holy Spirit was the one who shut those doors and did not allow him to go where he wanted to go. Paul recognizes there's a difference. There's a place where Satan stops him and tries to hinder him. And there's places where the Lord shuts the door and doesn't allow him to go. And Paul recognizes the difference in those. And it's amazing as, as Paul sought, as Paul ministered there and sought to go where he thought he needed to go and the Holy Spirit led him. Notice how the Holy Spirit led him and opened up a different door. And then Paul was able to walk through that door and that led to the church planning of Thessalonica. But the Holy Spirit will open doors for us. Sometimes we have to wait on him. Sometimes we have to look on him and lean on him. But the Holy Spirit will open those doors when it's time. Sometimes the Holy Spirit shuts the door and makes us set, makes us remain there for a while until he's ready to open the door for us. But the Holy Spirit leads us. And so uh, Paul is aware of that and which one is doing what. He's alert to that. Now, I think it's interesting as we look at this that Paul says Satan hindered us. But Paul doesn't share anything else with us about Satan. He doesn't give any clues. And it's almost as if the people of Thessalonica know who Satan is. Paul 
is ministering to Thessalonica. And remember, Thessalonica is a group of Gentiles. So Paul must have spent a little bit of time with the people of Thessalonica and shared with them a little bit about who Satan is. He must have shared with them that Satan is an adversary. He must have shared with them that Satan is just an angel that has fallen. He's nothing more than a created being who rebelled against God. In no way is Satan equal or equally in power with God. He must have shared that. But, you know, as we look at this, he also must have shared with them about the spiritual battle that he was in the midst of. He doesn't try to explain it here, but he just identifies it. So they must have been aware of who Satan was, that he is an enemy not to be feared, but yet an enemy not to be trifled with either. It was Satan who sought to tempt Jesus in the wilderness. Matthew 4, verse 3 says this, The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. I think it's verse 4 or verse 5 of Matthew 4 that identifies the tempter as the devil. So Paul must have shared that with them, that Satan is the tempter. He failed to cause Jesus to sin, but he attempted it. That same tempter is alive and well. He didn't quit. He didn't give up. He continues to go, and we need to be aware of that, that the tempter is alive and well, ready to tempt us, ready to shake us and knock us away. Satan, even though he's been defeated, he's still seeking to oppose God's plan. And he will do anything possible to oppose God's plan, anything within his means. It says in Ephesians 2, verse 2, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The sons of disobedience are simply unbelievers, people who are not following Christ. That's who Satan is working through. And as we look at our world today, don't we see him working alive and well in the sons of disobedience? We just saw on the news this last week that there are 10 churches in, in Canada that have been destroyed by fire. We, we see that in the sons of disobedience who are at work. Around the world, Christians being persecuted, the sons of disobedience at work, who possibly could be behind that? We see the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. He attempts and he works hard at trying to keep the seeds of the gospel from taking place. We saw in the letter to Thessalonica that they had received the word of God as the word of God, not as the word of men. There are many who reject the word of God and they see it as simply the word of men. Mark chapter 4 verse 15 says this, These are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately takes away the word that is sown in them. The gospel doesn't take root in the hearts of some people because Satan takes those seeds away, removes those seeds so that the seed cannot take root. Satan is the one who's behind that. Satan has a way of blinding the eyes of the unbelievers 
It says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. He has blinded their eyes. He has made it impossible for them to see the gospel. As believers, he is an adversary that we face as well. First Peter 5 verse 8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Paul, as he looks at the church of Thessalonica, he said, I wanted to come to you. I wanted to help you to grow. I wanted to be there with you and watch you mature, take graduation pictures, celebrate your birthday with you, do all of those things as you grow and mature. But Satan, the adversary, hindered me from doing that. Boy, this would have been a great time for Paul as he looks at the present just to go, man, I might as well throw in the hat. This is, this is not good. Satan's just so strong. Satan's just doing such good stuff. Man, I don't even know why I try. I might as well give up. You know, some people, they see the opposition, and that's what they want to do. They want to give up. They want to throw in the towel. They want to, they want to quit. But Paul was not that way. Paul looks at the present. He sees that Satan's at work. And you know what he does? Paul looks to the future. Paul looks to the future. Paul goes from the present. Paul goes from the past. And he looks to the future. Paul fixes his eyes on the future. I look at Paul and I say, man, how cool is that? Man, I wish I could do that. But don't we do that? We wake up Monday morning, don't we go, oh, Friday is just five days away. I'm even going to come up with a name for Wednesday, hump day. Get a tattoo, looking forward to hump day, so I know it's on the other side. So we look forward to Friday, don't we? We look forward to Friday. I think Friday at 6 o'clock when I was working at the steel mill was the best time of day in the world because you got the whole weekend looking ahead. You've made it through the week. 6 o'clock is the best time of the day. We do that, don't we? 61 more days until archery season. Look forward to that. Can't wait for that. 63 more years and you can retire. We do that, don't we? And this is exactly what Paul is doing. He looks at where they are in the here and now, and he looks to the future. Notice what he says. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Biblical hope is not worldly hope. Biblical hope is looking to the future with confident expectancy. It's being confident and expectant that this is in the future. And Paul is looking with confidence and he's looking with expectancy that this is going to happen in the future, that Jesus Christ is going to return. Paul, as he served, he served with one eye on heaven. It's in Colossians 3, verses 1 through 2. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. 
Are you guys that far behind? You guys are. <laughs> if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. I heard it said one time that if you're too heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. And I had to disagree. Because I think if we're too earthly minded, we're no heavenly good. We need to be heavenly minded. And as you look at Paul in these circumstances, we talked last time about how grateful, how thankful Paul was. How could he be so grateful? How could he be so thankful? He had one eye on heaven. He was looking towards heaven. This is just temporary. 63 more years, I'm going to retire. My retirement plan is out of this world. It might be 64, it might be 65. God is the one who changes that, not the government. God is the one who determines when we're going to retire. But we've got to keep working towards that retirement. Keep putting things away so that we're ready when it's our time. You know, as we look at this day and age, as we look at the times we live in, it's all going to be worth it when we see Jesus, isn't it? There should be a song about that. I think maybe I'll write that this week. I don't have anything going. I don't have to work till next Sunday, right? Might as well write a song. John 14, verses 1 through 3. Jesus, this is the lead letter edition. Let not your hearts be troubled. What happens to us when we get caught down and weighed down with the situations and the circumstances? Our heart gets troubled. What does Jesus tell us to do? Believe in God. Believe also in me. Fill yourself with pity because this is all you have. No. He says, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it weren't so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Paul is telling, or Jesus, sorry, is telling this to his disciples. This is just hours before he goes to the cross, before he's crucified. This is just hours before their world turns upside down. What are they going to do when they face the difficulties? Jesus says, believe in, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me, and put one eye on heaven. He tells them the same thing that Paul shares here, and the same thing that Paul is doing here in relationship to Thessalonica. Keep that one eye on heaven. And you know, wherever we are in our journey through life, that's what we've got to do, is keep our eye on the finish line. Keep focused on that. Don't get caught up in the here and now, but focus on what's in the future. Notice what he says here. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? It's going to be a great joy for Paul when he sees the church of Thessalonica in heaven. I think it still happens, but I could be wrong. I knew of some people who lived in the Clayton area, the large city north of us. And they had a Clayton days somewhere in Florida. During the winter, all of the residents, seven of them, from Clayton, 
gather together in this place in Florida and spend time together. And it's Clayton Days. So they all know where to meet. I don't know where it is. Uh, some small town like Orlando. Uh, they get together and celebrate together. Think about that for a moment. Won't that be a great time when we can gather as Medina Federated Church around the throne of Jesus Christ? I'll be singing in perfect harmony. What a great day that's going to be. But Jesus Christ is going to be the one we focus on, isn't he? And this is what Paul says, is that's our hope, our joy. You guys are our hope or joy. We see this. He says, for what is our hope or joy or crown? We think about crowns as, as being a reward. Paul says, what is our crown? It's you. It's you. You being there is our crown. Isn't it a greater joy for us when our kids succeed? Aren't we more excited when our kids succeed, succeed than we were when we did? I don't know how it works for you, but that's how it is for me. And I think when my kids are disappointed, I am more disappointed in their situation in regards to hurting like they hurt than I am my own situations. Uh, I mean, for me, a lot of times disappointment comes and I'm like, oh, well, <laughs> I'm a lemon. That's the way it works. But when I look at my kids and they're going through disappointment, my heart aches for them. I feel it for them. And this is Paul as he looks. He says, you guys are our hope. You guys are is our, our joy. You know, as believers, we are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ one day. And as we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, it says this in 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. As we look at this and as we think about the judgment seat of Christ, this is not the great white throne judgment. This judgment seat of Christ is not a seat of judgment. The word that's used here is bema seat. It's the bema seat. The bema seat was something that was used during the Greek games. And when people competed in the Greek games and they won, they stood before the bema seat. And whoever was presiding over the games uh, would take a, a, a wreath uh, made of olive leaves and he would place it on that person's head. And that would be their reward for winning the race. And that was called the Bema Seat. And that's what this word is here for the judgment seat of Christ, is the Bema Seat. And we are going to go before that seat, and rewards are going to be handed out. There's going to be celebration that takes place. It says in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation on someone else's building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold or silver or precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test what sort of work each one has done, and if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only 
as through fire. Paul was thinking about this group of believers standing there before Christ. And this is the work that he's done. This is the work that's going to be tested by fire. Will it last? This is a work that he was celebrating in because they were growing and they were maturing and they were following Christ. And he's looking at this difficult time and he's like, man, this is a difficult time. But boy, oh, what a day it's going to be. What a day it will be when Jesus we see. Man, it's already coming. Just a couple things and I'll have it. But notice what he says in verse 20. For you are our glory and joy. For you are our glory and joy. You know, as I think about that, I know that some of the people of Thessalonica were a strain to Paul. Some of them were a challenge to Paul. How do we know that? Because they were people. That's the way people are sometimes. Some of them weren't where they should have been with Christ. And you know, as Paul thinks about those who weren't walking where they needed to be, I'm sure his heart was broken. His heart was struggling because of that. But you know, he thought about it and he said, you know what? You guys are our glory. You guys are our joy. Gathering into heaven was going to be a great celebration. How great their joy would be when they all gathered together, seeing Jesus face to face and worshiping him. And Paul was thankful. His view forward had to have helped him to be thankful. So there you have it, looking at the present and looking at the future. So what do we take home from this? I mean, what do we apply to our Sunday afternoon? What do we apply to our Monday morning? I think the first thing that we've got to see here is that the church has value. This group of believers has value. This group of believers is here for a purpose. This group of believers is here for a reason. And as we go out and as we face the different circumstances that we encounter during the week, what a great opportunity this is for us to to come in and recharge our batteries, to be encouraged, to lean on one another, pray for one another. But that's the, that's the purpose that God has for the church. And what a great thing. And, and you know, as we, as we see Paul's heart, as we see Paul's burden for the people of Thessalonica, uh, he knew they, they needed each other. They needed each other to grow and to mature in their relationship. They needed each other to, to be able to encourage one another, to come alongside one another, to nurture one another, to push people along and carry people along. They needed that in the church of Thessalonica because they didn't want to be orphaned. And you know what? We have the same thing here. We can't do the Christian life by ourselves. We tried it during COVID. It just doesn't work. We need each other. And so as we think about this, we, we need to think about how we, can, how we can serve one another, how we can minister to one another. Think about how we can help others to grow and to mature and, and be encouraged and strengthened. Because we need one another. We need to value the church. I think another thing that we see here is we see a reminder that we need to grow towards maturity. We need to grow towards maturity. Uh, you know, as we think about that, 
I think there's oftentimes that we've looked at our kids and we've said, man, I just wish you could stay this age forever. You know, if they could just stay four, wouldn't that be great? I mean, my kids thought I was great when I was when they were four. I was the hero. I could touch the ceiling in our house. Man, Dad, you're Superman. Whoa. I wish I could stay four forever. But you know what? If they would have stayed four forever, I would have been taking them to the doctor, wondering what's wrong with them. Because we want them to mature, don't we? We want them to grow. That's what we should want for ourselves. We should want to mature. You know, staying babes in Christ is, is not a place that we should want to stay. How do we grow towards maturity? By being in the Word of God. By being in church and hearing the Word of God being taught and proclaimed. That's what helps us mature. And that's what we should want. We should desire to mature. I think as we look at this, we also need to be aware of Satan. I don't think he needs to be feared. But I think we need to be aware of them. I think we need to be aware of them. That's one of the things that I learned as a Schwann's man. A lot of times when you walk into a yard, uh, if the dog's there, most of the time, most of the time, if you're aware that he's there and you act like you know what you're doing, the dog won't bother you. There's a few times, but you have to be aware of them. You have to keep an eye on them. Satan is the same way. God is more powerful than Satan. We have to be aware of him. We have to be on the lookout. We have to be sober-minded and know that he's prowling like a lion, waiting to devour us. But you know what? We don't have to fear because God is the one who's on our side. But we have to be aware. And I think the most important thing that we look, take from this is that we've got to look to the future. We've got to look to the future. One of these days, this old body's going to be done. I'm going to graduate. I'm going to be face-to-face -face with Jesus. I want to make sure that I'm taking friends and family with me. <laughs> I don't want to be up there by myself. I want to see loved ones there as well. So I need to make sure that I'm taking people with me. I need to be busy about that, just like we do with a retirement, just like we do with making those future plans for vacation. We're setting aside money. We're doing little things so that we're ready for it. That's what we've got to be doing, too, setting aside things, being ready. So when it comes time for us to meet Jesus face to face, we're ready. Those loved ones that we know that uh, we go before, we want to make sure that they're going to come after. That's what we need to be doing.